Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter uh, 3 this morning, and I invite you to find that in your Bibles. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit, uh, just, uh, just for a little bit, about the hymn that we sang. Uh, there is a fountain is a, is a pretty standard hymn, isn't it? Uh, most of you probably knew the lyrics, if not the tune uh, to it as well. But do you know the, the history behind that hymn? Uh, this man, uh, William, uh, looks like Cowper, but I believe you say it, Cooper. William Cooper was born in England in 1731. Uh, his mom died when he happened to be six years old, and from then on he struggled with depression and anxiety. Uh, in his depression, his anxiety got so bad uh, that he had, when he had his final uh, exam for law school uh, before the English House of Lords, he had a mental breakdown uh, that he never really ever recovered from. He was sent to an insane asylum where he began to read the Bible for the first time. And this finally calmed his heart and his mind enough for him to be released about a year and a half later. And he was released into the care of his friend, John Newton. Newton, of course, was the, uh, the abolitionist and the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. And Newton and Cooper would write poetry and hymns together to, uh, to ease their anxious nerves and their guilty consciences. And the hymn, There is a Fountain, is one such hymn. And for someone who might be new to Christianity, uh, the first line of that hymn that we sang is, uh, is a little gruesome or, or even, um, yeah, just strange. There is a fountain filled with blood. Now, is that the opening of a, of a Christian hymn or a horror movie, right? <laughs> um, it's a strange thought that this fountain, that this blood would be, would be drawn to from somebody's veins, somebody whose name is... Emmanuel. I thought we had that fixed, right? <laughs> uh, but this, this blood that's drawn from somebody's veins, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, this blood cleanses. And, and this blood, which is so hard to get out of clothing and fabric, actually cleanses. And when we, when we steep ourselves in, uh, in his blood, stepping under the flow of that fountain, the, the hymn writer says, we are cleansed. What a, what a strange concept. But as we begin to look at Scripture, we see a pattern emerge, a, a divinely ordained and instituted pattern. Genesis chapter 3 records Adam and Eve's fall from sin and from grace. Before the fall, before sin, Scripture says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. But after the fall, they realized their own nakedness. They realized their own sinfulness and they became ashamed. And so God takes an animal, most likely a sheep or a lamb, and kills it as a sacrifice. The lamb gave its life and shed its blood to provide clothing for Adam and Eve, covering their sin, covering their nakedness, covering their shame. 
And then in Exodus chapter 12, the children of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt are told to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their house. And when they did that, the angel of death death would pass over their house, sparing the firstborn son from death. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones in the... the Jesus' storybook Bible uh, beautifully paraphrases it. The Israelites would remember that the lamb died instead of us. And the same could be said of all the Levitical sacrifices and systems in the Old Testament. Each sin was was a strike against the people. So each year on the Day of Atonement, they would offer sacrifices of wheat and doves and sheep and lamb. And remember, in faith, the lamb died instead of us. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died instead of you. At the cross, Jesus shed his blood, giving up his life for you. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, died for you. And in his blood, there is cleansing from sin. There is forgiveness of sin. And so we dirty sinners plunge ourselves in faith beneath the flow of that fountain and find in Jesus' blood cleansing from all of our sins. This Lent, we've been talking about this topic of repentance. And specifically, specifically, we've been looking at it through the lens of the question, who needs repentance? We found out that it's uh, not just horrible, wicked, dirty, rotten sinners who need to repent either. But as we've studied the word of the Lord, we, we've noticed quite a few people have need of repentance in their lives. Uh, Israel, the people of God, time and time again needed to repent. Godly kings like David and Hezekiah needed to repent. The wicked, cruel Assyrians needed repentance. A reluctant, stubborn prophet who got into a whale of trouble needed to repent. And this was by no means an exhaustive list. It was never intended to be that, but I, I trust that You've gotten the picture that as we've been going through this series that everyone, regardless of race, religion, status, socioeconomic class, everybody needs repentance. And so this morning we are going to be taking a turn. If you've noticed, up until now, all of our studies have been chronological through the Old Testament. And this morning we're we're shifting gears into the New Testament and this shift happened to correspond with our walk through the New Testament, our NT Live event yesterday at church. And our first study in the New Testament centers around a messenger and his audience, both the sincere and the insincere who heard him. So again, uh, Matthew chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I invite you to find that in your Bibles and let's stand as I read. Matthew chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Reading in Jesus' name. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when many 
or when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the chance that we have to gather together, Lord, and to study your word. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we ask that you would sanctify us this morning in that truth. And as we look at uh, this messenger of repentance, Lord, may we be a, a sincere recipient of that message. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Repentance. Who needs to repent? Everybody does, right? And so as we look at this text, let's first look at the messenger, at the messenger of repentance. And at our, at our Lent service on Wednesday, uh, we looked at the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah being one of the Lord's prophets called the people to remember uh, their history, the anger of the Lord. And, and he called his people to return to the Lord. Wednesday night, we looked at the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, and Zechariah, as one of God's prophets, called the, the people of the Lord to remember their own history, to remember the anger of the Lord, and, and called the people to return to the Lord. And as a prophet, Zechariah served as a spokesman for the Lord. Uh, he would hear a message from the Lord and then deliver it to the people. And after the service on Wednesday night, I was talking with some of the leaders of the, the Friendship Club. And the Friendship Club is, is the, the group for special needs individuals here at Maranatha. And one of the guys in the Friendship Club had actually summarized the role of a prophet in, in a much better way than I ever could hope to. He said that a prophet was a mailman, taking God's word and delivering it to the people. And I absolutely love that. It fits on so many levels, not just the simple delivery of a message either, but your mail carrier isn't supposed to alter the mail that you receive. She's not supposed to rifle through your, your magazines, removing the ones that she doesn't like and removing the bills that you have to pay, and he's not supposed to add other letters into it, right? A mail carrier's job is simply to deliver the messages, just like a prophet, just like Zechariah, just like John the Baptist. And we are, we are confronted here in this text with another prophet. He's called John the Baptist, and, and rightly is, but he also could be called John the, John the Mailman, right? John the Mailman, because he was a prophet, hearing the word of the Lord, delivering it to God's people who were waiting for this message. And God's people had been waiting. They had been without a prophet for the last 400 years. There had not been a new word from God, no new mail, for nearly half a millennia, despite some pretty uh, desperate times for Israel. 
In those 400 years, great emperors and empires of the world rose and had fallen. Empires we still talk about today, Alexander the Great and the Greek army, and the Roman Empire along with its foundational system of of representatives and democracy. In those 400 years, Israel itself had changed as well. Uh, Jerusalem was sacked and a a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV actually sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies and he built a statue of Zeus there. And the Jews rebelled, their rebellion was quelled, but yet through it all, through all of this history, the Lord was silent. You've probably heard the phrase, silence is golden, right? And there's, there's some truth to that, right? But it's also pretty deceptive, isn't it? Right? Silence is golden unless you're around children, and then it's suspicious, right? <laughs> silence is golden, Uh, unless the silence comes from the Lord God, and then it's dreadful. And so after all of that long silence, this guy John starts preaching out in the desert, claiming to be a prophet of the Lord. Look at verse 4 again, and look at his, his striking appearance. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Everything about John was striking, right? If John was driving or walking on the hot side of Highway 10 as you drove home today, uh, you would definitely stop and do a double take. And did I just see what I think I just saw, right? His, his dress was striking, clothes of, of camel hair, rough, itchy camel hair. His, his diet was striking, right? Locusts, wild honey. The location he even preached was striking, out in the desert wilderness of Judea, some of the remote places of his day. No synagogue, no temple for this prophet, this mailman of God. And even the message that he delivered was striking. He preached a hard-hitting, no-holes-barred message of repentance. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as a prophet, as a mailman, John's job description wasn't too different from the other prophets who had lived before him, right? Deliver God's message. But the timing of John's arrival was unique among all the other prophets. They looked forward hundreds, maybe even a thousand years to the coming of the Messiah, predicting his coming. John, however, preceded the Messiah by only a few months, uh, a year or more, most, uh, maybe just a few months, yeah. And his task was unique. All of them sought to turn the people of the Lord to the Lord, getting them back to the Lord. But his task was specifically to get them ready for the coming of the Messiah. Again, it had been 400 years since a prophet uh, had been there, and now, in the fullness of time, God had sent forth his Son, But the Lord knew that his people's hearts would need a little bit of priming. Going from 0 to 120 on a cold engine would damage your vehicle. And so you need some time to let that engine warm up, right? Same too with the the spiritual hearts of God's people. Jesus was coming. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. And John was sent by the Lord God to prime the hearts of his people. And John got the hearts of the people ready for the arrival of the Messiah through a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, during Lent, we've, we've looked at this topic 
this topic of who needs repentance, who needs to repent. And repentance is an acknowledgement of your sin, a confessing it, and a turning from it. It's an attitude that's followed by action and by change. And however, in order to repent, you first need to be aware of your own sinfulness, right? The own sinful condition of your heart. And that's what John did. He made people aware of their sins. And John wasn't afraid to preach against specific sins either. He called a spade a spade. For example, he called out Herod Antipas, who was the the ruler over Galilee for marrying his brother's wife, something that would eventually cost John his life, right? He called out tax collectors for pilfering money. He called out soldiers for extorting citizens. He, he, called, he, he confronted uh, normal, everyday people on their greed and their own self-centeredness. And as people became aware of their sins, they felt a, a genuine sorrow and a contrition for breaking the law of God. For breaking God's law, they repented of those sins. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But repentance, genuine repentance, is more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just a head knowledge uh, acknowledging a sin. With repentance, there is contrition, sorrow over sin, and a, a desire to turn from it. And this message of repentance was a message of repentance for all. And John knew that this message was a message that he needed as well. He didn't just preach the message. He lived it. He needed to repent. He needed a savior. Even though he was a prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah, he was no perfect man. In verse 12, he says that he was unworthy to even carry the sandal or uh, some, I think the Luke, Luke's account says, to untie his sandal of the Messiah, right? The messenger also needed the message. And so if there's a mailman delivering a letter, uh, if there's a mailman delivering a letter, there's also somebody who needs to receive that letter, a recipient. And in this text, there are two different groups, two different types of recipients of this message. One group was sincere, and the other group, well, they were not so much. So first, let's look at this group of sincere repentance. Look again at verses 5 and 6 with, you, or with me, if you will. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All the region. Somehow word gets out of, of John's preaching. However it got out from the wilderness, it did, right? Word got out, word spread. People came from all over to hear it. Matthew says that they came from Jerusalem and Judea and all around the Jordan. And we don't exactly know where John preached or or baptized. Uh, Scripture just says it's in the wilderness around the Jordan River. Luke mentions that that John went into all the regions around the Jordan River proclaiming his message. Uh, The map here on the screen has a couple of different sites that are traditionally recognized as possibilities for where John preached, and they're marked in green. One is near the northern section there, uh, closer to the Sea of Galilee. There's another one there in the middle where the Jabbok River flows into the Jordan, and another one is south, kind of near the Dead Sea there, right? Uh, Jerusalem is circled in blue here, and that's uh, 
obviously the capital of Judea, right? And the region of Judea itself is kind of that area marked in red there. And then the river around the Jordan that Matthew mentions is a bit ambiguous, but it's kind of circled in that that yellowish pea-green looking color (laughs) uh, there. But the point is that people from all over, from all over the region, from all walks of life were coming to John to hear him preach. Country folks from around the Jordan, those who lived in the area of Judea, right? City slickers from Jerusalem. John had actually even caught the attention of those in the palace, Herod and Philip and and Herodias. And so many people from all backgrounds, for all, from all walks of life, were traveling out to the desert, to, hear, to the middle of nowhere, to hear this man preach. And Richard Lenski, who's a, a conservative Lutheran commentator, and, and I'm not exactly sure where he gets this number, uh, but I'm going to go with it. Uh, uh, Lenski estimated that between 200,000 and 500,000 people uh, came out to hear John preached and be baptized. That's an insane number. It would be impressive even if it were only uh, half of that or a tenth of that, right? Uh, but yeah, a lot of people came out to hear John preach. Uh, this weekend, Elton John, a different John, right? Sir Elton John was in town. And I won't embarrass you by asking you if you went. If you went, that's all right. <laughs> we won't judge you, right? But when I checked on Friday, tickets to his concerts in the nosebleed were going for $100, right? And uh, $400 for seats in front of the stage. I can't imagine the traffic around the Fargo Dome this weekend as, as 20,000 people packed in to see Sir Elton John do his farewell tour, right? People came from all around, for miles around. Hotels in the area were booked, were booked solid. And over the years, uh, Elton John has built up quite a following, right? He's known for songs like Rocket Man, Daniel, Candle in the Wind. Uh, even as I came into church, I heard uh, Benny and the Jets on the radio this morning, right? But more than that, Elton John is known for his uh, flamboyant personality, right? His bombastic costumes have drawn quite the crowd. But even Elton John, who's playing to sold-out stadiums, had to start somewhere, right? (laughs) Playing in coffee shops, playing in bars, just to get his name out there. And I've often wondered how John the Baptist got his start. Somebody must have been that first one of the 200,000 people who were baptized by him, right? Did John put up posters in the local cafe advertising his desert revival meetings, right? Did he get airtime in local radio stations telling them to come out to the wilderness, right? Did he start teaching in local synagogues and, and, or have uh, Torah study groups and then take off for the desert? Who were those first people who heard John out in the wilderness and said, you got to go check this guy out, right? <laughs> who were those first people? But however, however word got out about John's preaching, it did, and it spread fast. And everybody, everybody came out to see and to hear. And as it turns out, not only see and hear, but they also sincerely received and believed his message. There were many sincere people whose, whose hearts were open to the work of the Holy Spirit through John's preaching. They were convicted of their sins. They repented of it. It says in verse 6 that they confessed their sins and were baptized by John. They heard the message of sin, of their sin, and they were cut to the heart as they heard John preach about the one who was coming, the one whose sandal he was unworthy to untie, the one who would be the Lamb of God who takes away from the sin of the world, they heard that message and they believed it. 
They confessed their sins to John, to one another, and they sought to turn from those sins. And they were baptized. And as, as Luke records in his accounting of the message of the messenger or the messenger's message, they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They found peace with God in baptism and in confession and in receiving forgiveness of sins. And then they went and they told everybody about this striking man in the wild, this striking man in the desert who proclaimed the kingdom of God was coming. And as they believed, they sincerely believed and received this message of the gospel. Among John's audience, however, there were some very insincere recipients of his message of repentance. Look at verses 7 through 10 again. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to ourselves, or to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Some people who came out to hear John, to see John, were members of the two religious sects of Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the, were the ultra-conservative squad. They put uh, utmost emphasis on strict outward observances of the law. The Pharisees emphasized the traditions of men, of the, of the rabbis, and added rules and regulations around the law of God, elevating their laws even up above the word of the Lord. They emphasized a strict religious diet. They adhered to very relig- ritualistic fasting. They, they they said loud, bombastic prayers. There was no smoking. There was no drinking. There was no dancing. And there would definitely have been no Elton John concert for a Pharisee, right? But if the Pharisees were the conservatives, the Sadducees were the liberals. They were the skeptics. They were the free thinkers. They rejected the traditions of the rabbis along with those rules and regulations. They would definitely have gone to the Elton John concert, uh, probably sat front row, and would have probably helped him design some of his costumes as well, right? But the Sadducees' rejection of the law came also with it its its own set of moral laxness. Rules and, and, and laws were, meh. Do whatever you want to do, right? Sadducees began to deny that there was life after death. There was no resurrection, no hope of eternal life. And that's, of course, right as the song goes, why they were so sad, you see, right? We sang that on Wednesday. And as members of both of these groups came out to John in the wilderness, coming out to his baptism, it sounds like they wanted to be baptized by him. But from John's response, they were definitely there with wrong motives. Maybe they were there to simply observe what John was doing, how he was drawing a crowd. Maybe they were genuinely interested in being baptized by him. Maybe they saw this as the next religious bandwagon that you got to get on board or, or, you, or you'll miss the, the boat. But again, based on John's response to them and their, and their presence there, uh, they were there with insincere hearts. John saw through their pious outward shows of emotion, and he knew their hearts. He knew there was no repentance in them. He knew they were there just for a show. 
And instead of mere outward shows of religiosity, John demanded true, honest, sincere repentance. He told the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. And repentance, while it is an interior matter of the heart and the mind and the emotions, it truly is a matter between a creature and his creator, repentance will naturally display itself by outwardly changed uh, attitudes and actions. You cannot repent of a sin while being actively engaged in it. Repentance is a wholesale course correction. And the Pharisees could not remain true Pharisees after repentance and receiving baptism. And the Sadducees could not remain true Sadducees after repentance and receiving baptism. Things needed to change. In verse 5, there had been an honest and sincere repentance on the part of the people who confessed their sins, turning from them. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees had no desire to confess their sins. And indeed, they, they probably didn't need to think, or they probably didn't think that they had any sins to confess. Remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Both of these men come to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee spends most of his time in his prayer glorifying himself, saying how good he was, expounding on his his prayer life, his fasting habits. And most of all, he thanked God that he wasn't like that dirty, rotten tax collector over there, right? But on the other hand, what was the, the tax collector's prayer? It was simple and it was beautiful. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that only one man went home that day justified, right with God. And it wasn't the one who trusted in their own self-righteousness, in their own goodness. Repentance is a wholesale course correction. But if you have convinced yourself that you have no sin, that you have no sin you need to repent of, you're just as guilty as the self-righteous Pharisee. An honest assessment of your life and your interactions with others will quickly reveal how far short of God's standard you've fallen. And if you're still convinced that you are without sin, let me talk to your spouse. (laughs) Because they will reveal the true sin, right? And it's not enough to think, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely better than him, right? Or I would never do what she has done. You're not to measure yourself to your neighbor. Your standard is God's law, and God demands that we keep his law perfectly, which is something that we can never do. And John, he knew that too, and that's why ultimately he pointed his audience to the one who was coming. John pointed to Jesus. Look at verse 11 and 12 again. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus was coming. His time was at hand. Soon John's ministry would diminish and Jesus would be magnified. And and John would be okay with that. I must decrease, he must increase. 
John was always pointing himself and his own disciples to the Messiah who was to come, the one who would give himself on a cross for us, the lamb who died instead of us. And next week, Pastor Lloyd will will talk about Jesus a little bit more as we get into the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 and talking about his baptism, his temptation, his beginning of his ministry. So stick around for kind of part two of this sermon. I began this morning with a hymn story, and so I better uh, finish with a hymn story too, right? The next hymn we're going to sing is To God Be the Glory. And the writer of this hymn, Fanny Crosby, was, was blinded when she was only seven weeks old. And while she couldn't see, she could write and compose, and compose she did. There are over a thousand poems and hymns that are accredited to her. Most of her hymns are experience-based, but this hymn that we're going to sing, To God Be the Glory, focuses squarely on the Lord and what he has done for us, what Christ has done for us. And I love uh, the second verse. Once we, once we get there, uh, pay attention to that verse, sing it out loud, right? Uh, especially in light of Lent and our focus on repentance and being wise in the blood of the lamb it says oh perfect redemption the purchase of god to every believer the promise of god the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from jesus a pardon receives everyone who repents of their sin letting returning to god finds forgiveness finds cleansing finds peace with god through our lord jesus christ and as always The altar is open after the service for prayer. If there's something on your heart that you have uh, in need of prayer, come, and we would love to pray with you. Let's close in prayer before we sing, To God Be the Glory. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this day and for your word. Thank you for your messenger of of repentance who uh, got people's hearts ready for the coming of the Messiah. I couldn't imagine what that scene would have been like in the the wildernesses surrounding uh, the Jordan River there where people are, are coming to you, confessing their sins, where repentance is happening, where revival is happening. Lord, and we, we would pray for revival in our own land. Lord, help us to be sincere recipients of the message that you have for us and not uh, insincere and not just think, well, okay, I'm good enough and I'm not like other people. Help us to examine ourselves, to see our sin, and to repent of it and find forgiveness and cleansing in the blood of Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.